Welcome back to the Alessant Innovator Series. In this episode, host April Lamont is joined by Dave Gilmore, CEO of Design Intelligence. Design Intelligence is made up of a series of business units. An example would be the Design Intelligence Leadership Institute, focused on bringing firms an expansive set of curriculum dedicated to redefining and understanding leadership. In this episode, April and Dave discuss challenges the industry may face as the generation of 65 plus live longer and the implications that that has on active adult, assisted care, and senior communities. Dave sees an opportunity for the industry to create affordable, accessible, and high quality products for this generation as they unlock their wealth and look for a place to live later in life. Dave also discusses what he labels the rise of proximity, the reintegration of services like centralized acute care and non-acute services returning home. Season two of the Alessant Innovator Series is presented by Alessant Azul, the scalable access control platform that augments your existing access control system. Learn more by visiting alessant.com. Hello and welcome to the Alessant Innovator Series. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Dave Gilmore. Dave Gilmore is with Design Intelligence based out of Atlanta. Dave, can we start out by learning a little bit more about you, the company, your experience? Sure. Well, it's an honor to be here with you on this series on innovation. I I just absolutely love that and the, the theme that you are focused on here through this innovator and therefore innovation series. Thanks again for letting me come and be with you. Um, Design Intelligence has been around for about 30 years, our 30th year anniversary, so we're pretty excited about, about that. I entered the organization about seven years ago. Our firm purchased Design Intelligence from one of its founders, who was Jim Kramer, a former head of the AIA back in the, in the 80s and early 90s. And then uh, we picked it up about seven years ago. Um, my background is really in mergers and acquisitions. Uh, my education is in philosophy and ethics and economics, so a, a varied fellow. But we have given ourselves to the built environment for several years, even prior to our acquisition of this asset and our are focused on what we call the transformation of this industry. So we're very excited about it. Design Intelligence is made up of a series of business units. Our think tank organization is called the Design Futures Council, an extraordinary gathering of, of uh, leaders from 100 plus firms and uh, uh, many uh, schools and universities, as well as outside thinkers from across the industry we meet multiple times a year, physically and virtually, and discuss the future, the future of the built environment across a series of themes. And then, of course, uh, Design Intelligence is all made, also made up of our research organization, our media group, our strategic advisory group, our capital advisors group, which is like an investment bank that we help firms with their transitions and mergers and acquisition activities. Um, and I think even more importantly than all of these is the DI Leadership Institute, which is focused on a 
uh, a, a very expansive set of curriculum that we bring to firms on redefining and understanding of leadership. So we are all in to this space and are, uh, we're, think we're making an impact. You, you always hope so anyway. Oh, I know so. I've been involved, at least in the wings, with the Design Futures Council for 25 years and have seen a lot of this evolution myself and really am very excited about the work that uh, Design Intelligence has done and where you in particular and your group are taking this organization. So hats off to you on that. You know, one of the reasons I was excited, Dave, to chat with you today is because you have a very broad perspective of the real estate industry. Many of us who have um, been in this conversation before are focused on the residential market, but it seems that every sector of the real estate industry has implications for the residential um, mark, segment of the market. What are some of the things in particular that you're seeing that you think you know, we should be thinking about? What's gonna have um, potentially quite significant impact on, on the residential market? Well, it's a great question because there's so many variables hitting, but I think the one that people speak of but don't spend time in enough is the massive demographic shifts that are occurring in the American society. As you know, the baby boomer generation, which ranges somewhere between 70 and 77 million people, it's always fun looking at the surveys on that, which meant that you were born sometime between 1946 and 1964. In that period of, uh, or that generation of people uh, making these 70 plus million are also uh, the wealthiest generation on record in the world. Uh, as a matter of fact, of all the generations that are now currently in place, uh, we're watching the baby boomers, the Gen Xers, the millennials, the Gen Zs, and the whatevers. I don't know what the whatevers are called, the ones that are coming up through the stacks. We see all of this combined. The rest of those generations don't account for the wealth held by the, the baby boomer generation which literally controls about 70% of the wealth in the United States. And those folks started turning 65 at the rate of 10,000 people a day back in January of 2011. And that's when people started to turn 65 in this generation. And 10, think, think about that, 10,000 people a day turning 65. And that will continue all the way up until 2030. So it's a big change that's happening and of course, with all of that aging and ergo retirement from active workforce, many of them will uh, retire when they're 65. Others will go on till they're 70 or 72. Things are stretching out a little bit further than they did in our prior generations. But regardless, the case is, is that the wealth is moving from one construct of being a working family, a working couple, a working individual, all the way now it's moving into this retirement. And so the use of funds, the use of money is going to change dramatically as well. These millions of people are also the owners of unbelievable amount of wealth in their real estate, in their homes, 
in most cases, I'd say the lion's share of the case, their mortgages are paid off. So you have these assets that are not debt encumbered. And yet many of the homes where I would say most of the homes where people live in that age bracket are not readied for them to move into senior uh, aging. And that since that, you know, the uh, I don't know, the washing machine is still down in the basement and mom and dad's room is still up on the upper floor and the middle floor is just kind of where you hang out. And, and yet the knees aren't working and the hips are going a little bit and stuff is going on. And so navigating the ups and downs of stairs becomes a challenge. And so it's going to require them probably moving, which means a massive, I mean, an unbelievable transfer of assets from one generation to another as literally a few billion square feet of residential space will over this next primarily this 10 year period right now from 2023 to 2033 will be released and brought back into the market that has been held so closely for decades. That in itself has massive economic implications. It has massive implications to way neighborhoods will operate and are renewed or remade. It certainly has a, a tremendous amount of, of uh, implication on where are these people moving? And of course, that's probably one of the biggest questions that's on the board today. Yeah, and um, where do you anticipate people will be moving? I mean, I think a lot of people in our industry are focused on the active adult market, 55 plus, whether it's for sale or for rent. And of course, the traditional senior living. I mean, what, what are you forecasting, Dave? Well, I think the first of all is let's take a look at this generation of seniors. They and I'll be I'll be very unscientific here and I'll give you that in a loose way, they're categorized into four buckets. There is there are those who are retiring who their household income is less than $50,000 a year. So they're, they're pretty much living, you know, check to check. And there's not a lot of money in the bank, though in many cases, even on that level of income, they've been able to maintain a house and pay off a mortgage or they're very, or if they don't have a home and they've been in an apartment or other rental property, they have been able to set aside a little bit of money. The second category is what we call the massive middle. And this is folks that are operating on a on an income level above 50,000, but not more than 100,000 uh, a year in their retirement. That, that, that means when they quit working, that's how much they were making. Of course, once they quit working, that drops dramatically because you don't get to go one for one on work to retirement in most cases. And we're estimating that number to be about 50 million people a lot of folks who fall within that category. The third category is above 100,000 up to a million dollars. That seems like a big range, but it is. It's a pretty, it's a sizable range, but there's not that many people that operate within there. And they start to move up into what we call, have traditionally called the one percenters, right? Or we're going to say the two percenters, because the one percenters are usually a 250,000 and above. And so this brings that down, but it doesn't bring it to that what we call massive middle range. So about 2% of the population falls up into that space. 
And then there's the ultra wealthy who are over a million dollars of annual income uh, at, at the time that they retire. And they make up the very small part of that 2% way up at the, at the top, maybe, maybe a quarter percent or even a half a percent. So if you look at those four categories, you can see that up at the top end of this, the very upper end, that ultra wealthy, we're going to take them off of the equation for this conversation because they've pretty much figured out what they're going to do. They have plenty of money. They've, they, they're not challenged the way that we might see the typical American challenged. The second category the, from the top, that 100 to a million, 100,000 to a million, are moving into wonderful uh, communities. In many of those cases, they're continuous care retirement communities where you're completely independent, you live in a house, you have a neighborhood, it's usually a ranch or something that's really easy, and you get to kind of age in that process and then move across the continuum to some assisted care and then some nursing care and sadly in some cases even to, to the hospice end of that dynamic. And those, those CCRCs affectionately referred to, we like to refer to everything in acronyms, don't we? Those, those CCRCs, yeah, they're growing in, in space. But then we still haven't dealt with what we call that massive middle, which is that community of people who don't have independent wealth, the majority of their wealth will be held in their mortgage and they'll sell their home and they may, they'll gain as, as little as maybe 200,000 and as much as a million. It depends on where they live and what construct they're in, but that's going to be their big nest egg. And they have to decide how they're going to make that last for however long their life lasts. And many of them are retiring at 66, 67 years old, and they're, they're probably betting I've got 20 or 25 years of life left, and this is what's got to make it happen. And they're going to be transferring that into buying a home or a place that they feel cared for, that is affordable, that is attractive, and that is high-performing in the sense that it doesn't fall apart after the first three years of being, uh, being built. And that's the, it's what we call the magic trinity right there. That's the holy trinity of, of the massive middle is finding attractive, affordable, high-performing real estate. And I don't believe that we have a massive answer to that at this point. You'll see, you'll see spit spots, but there has not been a national strategy on how to deal with that. And then, of course, the first category, which we'll speak about last, is the under 50,000 uh, household income. And this will continue to be a struggle. They will be looking for places to rent that they will be able to, to somehow make it and subsist upon. And that, will, that has always been a challenge, and it will continue to be a challenge to understand how we as a society uh, help and support that level of income upon retirement. But I would say our biggest problem is what we're calling this massive middle at this point. And where are we seeing them go? We, we, uh, we're seeing a dramatic shift away from what has traditionally been the Southwest, uh, where things are starting to move to the Southeast of the United States, where temperatures are temperate. You actually have trees that grow there. You have a, 
a, a, a less a natural disaster. Usually you're going to get some hurricane stuff if you're over by the, by the coast, but in most cases, very few uh, tornadoes, lots of rain, uh, lots of interstate opportunities to move, great airports, lower cost of living. Um, and so we're seeing that happen in both North and South Carolina, in Georgia, Florida, and of course, swinging bigly into Texas that has become like the number one location at this point on the calendar where people are going. And so, first of all, thank you for dimensionalizing the opportunity um, around um, this massive middle, as well as giving us a broader context for how to think about all of us baby boomers who are, you know, coming in with gusto here. When you talk about the opportunity, the great opportunity, this holy trinity, what do you think it's going to take to start to formulate solutions to to serve this um, population to to take advantage of this um, great opportunity? You know, it's a great question. I'm sure this is my opinion. I think our our studies are kind of bearing it out and all the research that we do, but we're calling it the the resurgence or the rise of proximity. It's an it's an interesting word. Uh, uh, prox, proximitatim is the actual Latin word, and the word means neighborly or na- uh, vicinity. It's the place you come around to gather, right? And what we have found over many years is that neighborhoods were diminished and moved out. We saw people living next to each other, but never connecting with one another. Uh, We saw a lot of the services moving out of neighborhoods so that healthcare became a place you had, a destination you had to go to, a big monolithic hospital someplace out on the edge, but healthcare was taking out of the community. And now we've been watching this move back into the community, this idea of of services being in proximity to one another, where neighborhoods are being created and designed to encourage interaction, collaboration, uh, neighborliness, uh, civility. And uh, we're pretty excited about what we think that this move will mean into the future, where you really have a centralized acute care uh, in these hospitals, but moving all non-acute care services back to the home, back to the neighborhoods, back close in. And of course, we watched what just happened in the pandemic and the meteoric rise of telehealth. And that people thought, oh, that'll come and that'll go. Well, it hasn't gone. It continues to sustain. And we think that telehealth will become more and more sophisticated and capable so that that delivery of healthcare services not only dramatically drops the cost of healthcare, but brings healthcare literally into your home, which is, we think, a very win-win opportunity. No, it's interesting that you mentioned that. We've had guests on the podcast and those coming up who are developing master plans, thinking about those some of those services, especially around healthcare. And, you know, we have a long tradition of having an amenitized lifestyle, generally around social fitness, and just interacting with each other. But I'm hearing about more and more communities really looking to health campuses as 
they think about amenities, you know, that they become an anchor for the, the community. Are, are you seeing that trend as well? I'll tell you, I live in Atlanta. I live in a place called Sandy Springs on the north side of Atlanta. But north of us is where all the growth is going. And it's interesting. We moved here from Boston 25 years ago. The greater uh, metropolitan area of Atlanta at the time was 2.4 million. Today, that number exceeds 6 million. So that's a heck of a growth pattern. And it will just continue. And the majority of that growth is on the north side of Atlanta as it continues to move. I suppose someday, will actually touch Chattanooga way up in the north, but it just continues. And I do hope that Georgia figures out that it's big enough to to maybe put a second airport in. <laughs> and so that would be really something. Uh, but what we're watching is a tremendous number of these communities are coming into play that you're talking about, where People uh, far and wide are being surveyed by the development companies to understand what are their lifestyle preferences, how focused are they on health, on healthiness, on community activities, everything from playing golf to playing board games to playing cards to swimming to dining to whatever kinds of activities that bring people together. And they're using that data to better define how they're going to develop the types of communities they're putting in place. I just think it's extraordinary. That is the proper use of data for a positive, meaningful, and effective end. And so we're watching that happen up in the north uh, here in Atlanta of of walkable uh, neighborhoods that are highly walkable, very secure, a lot of lighting in the evening so people could get out for evening strolls opportunities for people to get out of the extreme heat that we have here sometimes in the summer and uh, lots more shaded areas for people to recover in their walk. Um, more water features that are uh, positive that are uh, and they're capturing groundwater, which is really special in how that's being used. Um, and then of course, they're trying to to break the code on that affordable, attractive, uh, high performing. I think they're 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 struggling with the affordability side of that because affordability, I guess, is uh, is subjective and relative to your particular level. But we we're hoping that they're going to spend more and more of being able to get the massive middle into that into these same kind of high performing communities. You have the unique perspective um, with the Design Futures Council and other events that you put on with design intelligence to bring a cross-section of designers, uh, developers, financial um, people, building materials people. I mean, it feels like it's going to take an integrated effort to combat some of the countervailing winds that we've been experiencing, particularly over the last couple of years, whether it's supply chain, uh, labor availability, just the cost of money going up. I mean, how are you feeling about those conversations amongst uh, those that you're interacting with? Do, do you feel like we're talking about this enough? Yeah, well, uh, you can never really talk about it enough if you're doing that intelligently. If on the other hand, you're using just what you saw in the latest internet release 
and you're talking about that, you're probably going in a ditch because it's not right most of the time. You know, here we are having this conversation in, in the early part of 2023. And uh, from our perspective at Design Intelligence and the economists, the people that are here and that we work with both inside and outside, we do believe that a technical recession is in the offing for 2023, but it will not be as deep nor as wide as traditional recessions. We're, we're watching these things go pretty shallow and uh, pretty narrow. We watched certainly in 2022, it's already started in 23. The healthcare market is running vertical uh, in its growth. We're seeing the same, of course, with life sciences. Multifamily has pumped the brakes a little bit, probably because they're trying to figure out what's going to really happen with the interest rate rises, but they're re-penciling uh, their performas and coming out with some great solutions. So I think you're going to see a resurgence in a pretty big way of multifamily housing uh, in 2023. Uh, hospitality, which is usually extremely sensitive to any kind of economic hesitation, has bucked the trend and continues to rise and grow as we're watching so many hotels and resorts continue to be built out around the country and certainly internationally. So what we're saying is, is that we believe that the U.S. economy is ridiculously uh, resilient. Uh, it has been uh, properly propped up by the Federal Reserve, both in its uh, the appropriate ways it's dealing with uh, its aggressive attack on inflation through destruction demand or demand destruction. We also believe though that we're, we're being smart out of Congress and supporting through the type of stimulus that's been done because the, the entire world depends on the US economy to perform. It sets the benchmark for every other economy across the world. And if we had not taken aggressive action to ensure that this didn't become a deep, long, uh, recession, then that would have bled over into the rest of the world. And I think we've we've done a good job from, a, I'm talking here from a purely economic standpoint, not from any political left, right, red, blue, up, down perspective. I don't really care about that. I care about where we are from a, from an economic standpoint. So I think we are, we are in a very good position. One of the things that must change though, as we, as we move through this is there is in, in, in general, there is a very divided line between our generation of the baby boomer and the generations before us when it comes to conscious and active environmental, social, and economic responsibility. That has not been on the front of our minds uh, as, as young people and as young adults and even as mature adults that we're responsible for the environment. And we're responsible for social cohesion and we're responsible for good economic policy and good economic things. And, and I think we've just kind of, as a baby boomers, just moved along through life. And before you know it, we found ourselves in these inequitable places on how we've dealt with the environment, society and economics. So it's incumbent on this super wealthy generation to put on a new lens to look through the development of residential properties into this near and intermediate future. It's one thing I'd like us to spend more time on is just being responsible and balanced in how we address these issues. I don't want us to go to 
a place where everything is uh, crazy in this side and everything is denied on that side. I think that there is a lovely middle and I fundamentally believe that most Americans in their heart live about 20% left or right of center. And so if that, if that population would start to operate in that balanced fashion of just taking on the right responsibilities, we could do amazing things in this residential market as it grows across the United States to not repeat the errors of the past, but to bring forward the successes of the past while adding some more value that we've been talking about. I'm pausing because that is so well said, Dave, really. Um, so you talked about some um, of the different types of responsibility and one is around the environment. You mentioned social responsibility. You mentioned financial responsibility. How as baby boomers, and I am one, um, I believe you are too, you know, how do we go about putting on a different set of lenses? What, what advice would you give uh, to me, to others, you know, sort of in our cohort to start moving towards some real change? Well, I think, you know, we've been around long enough that we go by the uh, Voltaire said and, and uh, uh, Mark Twain repeated him sometime later in, in a more humorous way. But it was basically he said, common sense is not so common. And for some reason or another, it may be, I could give you a few reasons why I think, but for some reason or another, we've checked common sense out and put it on the shelf and we're operating too much out of an emotive sense of dynamics. We can read an article and, and get all heated up about it. We can, we can watch an interview and we're too quick to go yes or no, uh, to, to not be able to properly balance two opposing ideas mm -hmm. at the same time in our minds, as F. Scott Fitzgerald spoke of intelligence, I think that we have an opportunity to get back to common sense and allow people to make their, to express their opinions and make their cases without dropping the gavel on there by judgment in the first paragraph. We need to allow people to express themselves, even though they may not in the same way or more form or fashion, get through all the fog and try to get to the essence of the argument that they're trying to make. We still may end up with a disagreeing position, but our disagreement ought not be judgment. It's just, we're going to agree in a civil way to disagree. Right. But we have to stop just, we have to not stop there. We have to seek for the areas that we agree to agree upon and not be satisfied with agreeing to disagree. And if we can get there, then these issues around environmental responsibility start to make sense. I mean, honestly, in 2022, we had what were considered 18 extreme climate events in the United States. There's no question that these were extreme. Anybody with a brain will tell you they were extreme. Those amounted to $165 billion of loss. Now, that's not normal. We need to figure out how do we play into the future to mitigate that kind of, of, of uh, activity and loss. It's not going to happen overnight. 
it's going to take another generation to hopefully be able to stabilize what we have messed up. In the meantime, we can start to create more social responsibility by the way that we design our communities, by the way we communicate about those communities, by the way we interact with one another in these neighborly places, these places of approximation, we can start to return to an idea of civility. And that doesn't take a generation. That takes a day. Every day you wake up and make the decision, today I will allow anyone to offer me anything and I'll take it with open arms in in the spirit of civility. That's what made this country great for some reason. We have gotten off course, and it literally is the decision of its citizenry to get it back on course. And I'm excited about that. I think that we have that opportunity in these coming years. And the baby boomers could lead that by starting to act out of their maturity and show a different way for the generations coming behind. Um, I'm encouraged that way. Me too. Me too. You know, at this point, I always like to to shift a little bit to talk about more about you and when there's two questions I typically ask but one is you know what you what are your sources of innovation or excuse me inspiration and by inspiration I, I have to just say that that last statement that you just made that challenge I found to be very inspiring and something that is within individual control you know sometimes the issues feel so big that it's like, well, what could I possibly do? But I love how you just frame that as something that really every person of any generation, but to your point, the baby boomers could could embrace this as a as a generational mantra of just practicing civility. So in terms of inspiration, I mean, uh, you're obviously a very well-read, thoughtful person. Um, where do you look to continue to inspire yourself and your own thinking and development? Well, it's a great question. I I take it actually from the example of my dad. My father passed away about 15 years ago, but he was an insatiable reader. He never stopped reading. He was a physician for 50 years, and uh, he literally stopped and a few months later passed. And, mm. uh, and that was when he was 80 years old. He was a, a, a general practitioner. Uh, they called him Doc. He drove a pickup truck. He, he uh, drove out into the countryside and took care of people. And he was this extraordinary human. But he never stopped reading and learning. And uh, when he was 78, he decided that he wanted to speak Spanish fluently rather than chop around on it. So he did something crazy. He only watched Spanish-speaking television, only took Spanish-speaking newspapers and magazines, and only listened to Spanish-speaking radio. And he completely immersed himself. And he he told me that upon what he called my graduation was when I went to the grocery store and I could have a fluent conversation with the checkout person that was there, who was of Hispanic uh, descent, and we held the entire fluid conversation in Spanish. And I've thought, goodness gracious, I've always been that way, and I wondered where I got it. And then, of course, I understood. I'm an insatiable reader myself. I read 
anywhere between four and six books every month. And these are anything from books on economics to classic literature. One of my favorite fiction writers ever is Alexander Dumas. You might remember him. The Count of Monte Cristo, The Man with the Iron Mask, The Three Musketeers. And uh, though they're entertaining, I always find there's significant philosophical deep lessons in those, those texts. I read a lot of history. In the words of uh, Mr. Churchill, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. So I'm always trying to understand what went before us. Yeah. And I have a variety of interests from neuroscience and physics all the way across to architecture, English literature, history, painting, all kinds of things. Uh, and so my inspiration comes from many different places. And I think it's, it, it's not natural. It's a discipline because I think it's my responsibility to think holistically. And so that's why I do that. Hopefully nice. that helps. It does help. It does help. And it, it, I can already tell it's going to inform the other question that I typically um, like to hear people talk about. And that is, what advice would you give your, yourself at 25 years old, knowing what you know now, the experiences that you cultivated, and obviously very actively so to create this holistic view, what advice would you give the 25-year-old today who's looking ahead and wants to take advantage of what, what Dave has learned? Mm. You know, there's this, uh, and, and thank you for asking me. I was asked this a few years ago by some friends uh, who were putting together a book for design students. And the book was called Letters to the Future. And all of us who were asked to write a letter wrote a letter to our, to our, our younger self, as if we were 20 or 25 years old. And what would I say to myself if I was back at that place? And it was interesting because, gosh, they assembled letters from Art Gensler, from mm. Norman Foster, from Renzo Piano, from, I mean, it was just an unbelievable number of, of folks that contributed to this. I think the, the book is called Letters to the Future. And uh, my particular part, really, as I thought about it, came from uh, the Shakespearean play Hamlet, where this fellow, uh, Polonius, is speaking to his son, I believe. And he says in that, neither a borrower or a lender be, for loan oft loses both itself and a friend and borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry. But this above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the day the night, thou canst not be false to any man. And so it's this idea that when you maintain your integrity, first of all, you have to discover who am I and what do I believe, and then maintain a trueness to that. Then when you do that, then your life is more secure. You get to this place of self-acceptance and it allows you to be more accepting of others. But if you're always lost in who you are, you'll always be lost in who others are. And so that's my words of advice to my younger self. Find yourself and to thine own self be true. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. I... 
I've heard so many things that I find inspiring today and also challenging. And so I want to thank you, Dave, for your candor and your directness and sharing your perspective with us. If people would like to keep in touch with you or follow you and your work, how would we find you, Dave? Well, uh, you can always go out to Design Intelligence, which is at di.net. Um, and there you'll find our, our production work, our podcast, our videos, our articles, our events, the things that we're doing. Um, and, um, and we would love to stay in touch with you. We'd love to stay in touch with Alessand so we can know how best to support the work that you're doing because you're getting the word out, which is so critical. Thank you. And uh, so I'm hoping, uh, April, this is one of several interactions that we'll have. Absolutely. And I do want to encourage people to check out the podcast. You, I noticed that you have two, and one in particular is kind of a short format, Lessons in Leadership, that is incredibly powerful, you know, where you can get these bite-sized nuggets of, of really actionable learning around leadership. Yeah, that can be found at this is designintelligence.com. It's all one word. This is designintelligence.com. And we have a longer format where we bring on guests very much like I'm a guest on your podcast here. And then we have, as you just mentioned, these shorter, less than five minute nuggets about what it means to lead. Yeah. Perfect. And we'll have that in the show notes as well, in case you'd like to follow up and, um, and check out those resources. Dave, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a great pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Alessant Innovator Series. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast and learn more at Alessant Innovator Series. Dot com.